master's commencement. However, we learn here three facts about law. First, that he was a convinced Jacobite. Second, that he was not discreet, or at any rate, not worldly wise. Third, that he was regarded at Cambridge as a man who could and would make an amusing speech. Indeed, as we can see from his books, Law had a pretty gift of wit, though he was absolutely devoid of humor. The difference is that wit sees the absurdities of others, while humor is conscious of its own. Shortly afterwards, Law testified to the sincerity of his political convictions in a much more serious fashion. On the accession of George I in 1716, he refused to take the oaths of allegiance and abjuration and was accordingly deprived of his fellowship and of all prospect of employment in the church. The loss to law was very great. His stiff conscientiousness cost him not only influence, but work, and he was condemned henceforth to eat his heart as a looker-on. Further, he was exposed to the full force of that sour trial which besets the martyr who is not wanted. The history of non-jurism— like that of Jacobitism in general, is not edifying. But affliction tries the righteous man, and very pure reverence is due to those who, like Ken, Nelson, and Law, retained their saintliness in a world which had cast them out, and which they could not understand. Almost immediately after the resignation of his fellowship, Law began to make his mark in the world of literature. The three letters to the Bishop of Bangor appeared in 1717 the remarks upon the fable of the bees in 1723, and the case of reason in 1731. Mandeville was a silly, scoffing creature, but Hoadley, the latitudinarian bishop, and Tyndall, the philosophical deist, were formidable antagonists, and Law showed himself a match for both. In 1726 appeared the treatise on the absolute unlawfulness of stage entertainments. Of this we may notice in passing, that it was suggested by a piece that had been acted almost every night one whole season, in which Venus, Pan, Salinas, Bacchus, and a number of other filthy demons of the heathen world were brought upon the stage to talk in keeping with their character, or want of character. Law, no doubt, was carried too far. He forgot that he was not living in the age of Tertullian, and on this, as on many other questions, he showed a want of balance. But his disgust at wanton songs and impure rant was natural enough in days when the Restoration drama held the stage, and there is much that might be said about the morality of the footlights in any age. In 1726 appeared the first of Law's devotional works, The Practical Treatise Upon Christian Perfection. It is significant that Law uses perfection here, not, as the old fathers, of love, but of obedience. One result of the book was probably that connection with the Gibbon family, which shaped the whole of Law's afterlife. About this time, Mr. Edward Gibbon, the grandfather of the historian, was seeking a tutor for his only son. Law was selected for this office, attended the younger Gibbon to Cambridge, and in 1730, when his pupil went abroad to make the grand tour, found a home in that spacious house with gardens and land at Putney, where his patron resided, in decent hospitality. Here he lived as a much-honored friend and spiritual director of the whole family, 
Till the establishment was broken up some little time after Mr. Gibbon's death in 1736. In 1729, the publication of the serious call had set the seal on Law's reputation, and he was visited and consulted at Putney by a little circle of disciples. Chief among them were Dr. Cheney, the two Wesleys, and Byram. The Wesleys drifted away from him, but the good and flighty John Byram, squire of Kersall near Manchester, poet, mystic, Jacobite, physician, remained his faithful friend and worshipper through life. But Law was one of those men who have many admirers and few friends, and whose friends are markedly inferior to themselves. They are men who cannot bear contradiction. In 1737, according to Mr. Morton, in 1740, according to other authorities, we find Law settled at King's Cliff, his birthplace, in a good house known as King John's Palace.